click, pay, and download instantly. Welcome to the podcast. Tonight, frustration and confusion over the CDC's mass guidance reversal with COVID now surging in all 50 states. And breaking news, the Washington Nationals game postponed after 12 positive tests. The CDC defending its call for fully vaccinated people to mask up in areas of high or substantial transmission. Many cities, states and businesses scrambling to adapt. Other states rejecting the new guidance outright. President Biden today wearing a mask outside at the White House and now Google and Facebook joining the growing list of companies mandating vaccines for employees. After weeks of talks, the bipartisan breakthrough on a $1 trillion infrastructure deal. The deadly shooting at a movie theater. Was it a random act? This is NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt, reporting tonight from Tokyo. Hello from Tokyo, more than 5,000 miles from the U.S. mainland, yet part of what feels like an ever-shrinking world under the pandemic. As this Olympic city struggles to contain its own COVID outbreak, the latest effort to reverse a surge in cases back home in the United States is causing confusion and irritation after the CDC reissued those new face mask guidelines for regions of the country where the virus is spreading rapidly and for children returning back to school. Though some local leaders move quickly to adopt them. Others are pointing to a loss in confidence as the agency's policies evolve. All this comes as COVID cases spike in some areas, leaving hospitals overwhelmed. Miguel Elmiguer has the fallout. Tonight, mass confusion as the United States stands divided over changing guidelines. Just hours after the CDC released this blotted map saying all Americans should wear masks indoors where COVID spread is substantial or high, Nebraska's governor argued the guidance flies in the face of public health goals. At least nine states already have restrictions on mask mandates. It's frustrating. It's confusing. They're sending mixed messages constantly. As Americans and elected leaders struggle to find common ground over simple health measures. Which is it? Vaccines or masks? The vaccines work or they don't work. Today, those announcing the change defending their decision to control the spread after telling the vaccinated two months ago they would no longer need masks. Something has changed and what has changed is the virus. The Delta variant is driving COVID clusters in every state. The attorney general in Missouri says he'll sue to overturn Kansas City's adoption of the new CDC guidelines. Just as hospitals and hotspots nationwide are on the brink of crisis again. We are full, 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 and it's scary. As major employers like Google and Facebook announced today vaccine requirements for those returning to the office, New York City says they'll soon pay people $100 to get vaccinated. If we get people vaccinated who are not yet vaccinated, if we mask in the interim, we can halt this in just a matter of a couple of weeks. But despite the plea, 100 million Americans have yet to be inoculated. Washington's football team only recently hit the 50% vaccination rate. I'm beyond frustrated. The reason I walked in with the mask on is, you know, I'm, I'm immune deficient. 
Tonight, there is no sign our nation will return to a 2020-style lockdown. But as the Delta variant surges, far too many families will face last year's heartbreak. Miguel, we're just learning a Major League Baseball game has been canceled over COVID. Yeah, Lester, the Phillies national game has been canceled. Reports say 12 players and staff members tested positive for the virus. 11 were fully vaccinated. This highlights that concern for breakthrough infections. Lester. All right, Miguel Almaguer, thank you. President Biden once again wearing a mask outdoors as he is expected to order all civilians who work for the federal government to get vaccinated or face strict COVID protocols. Peter Alexander is at the White House. Tonight, President Biden back at the White House, back to wearing a mask, just weeks after celebrating a return to mask-free life for the vaccinated. Let this be the summer of joy and freedom. But today, the major U-turn. The White House now ordering mask mandates inside federal buildings, even for the vaccinated, where the virus's spread is high. And President Biden tomorrow is expected to mandate all civilian federal employees be vaccinated or submit to strict COVID protocols. A dramatic reversal for the president, who was asked just months ago if he supports a vaccine mandate. No, I don't think it should be mandatory. Just like I don't think masks have to be made mandatory nationwide. Under the expected new policy, officials here say those who do not show proof of vaccination would have to be tested frequently and wear masks. The president today again urging all Americans to get the shot. Please, if you're not vaccinated, protect yourself. But Republicans are slamming the shifting message, including on Capitol Hill, where the chief doctor announced a mask mandate for the House due to rising cases in D.C., Top Republican Kevin McCarthy saying that was not based on science, but a decision conjured up by liberal government officials who want to continue to live in a perpetual pandemic state. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi then calling McCarthy a moron. McCarthy firing back. We are vaccinated. We're not a hot spot, but they're forcing you to wear a mask. Not in the Senate, but in the House. This is just about more control. To say uh, that wearing a mask is not based on science, I think, is, is not wise. And, Peter, there's also a major headline tonight about a bipartisan infrastructure deal. What can you tell us? That's right, Lester. The White House announcing it's reached a deal with bipartisan senators on this $1.2 trillion package, the most expensive transportation bill in U.S. history, a vote to advance it happening tonight. Lester. Peter Alexander at the White House. Up next, as we continue tonight, one family's tragedy highlighting the issue of rideshare safety. Back now with a dramatic moment in court, parents facing the man convicted of killing their daughter after she mistook his car for an Uber. Here's Katie Beck. Read the jury, the road to justice for Samantha Josephson's family ended Tuesday with a guilty verdict and a life sentence. But unbearable pain lives on. I close my eyes and I feel what she endured at his hands 120 times. Over and over and over, fighting for her life, locked in his car. In 2019, the 21-year-old University of South Carolina student stepped into what she thought was an Uber ride, a fatal mistake. A jury convicted Nathaniel Rowland of kidnapping and murder for impersonating an Uber driver, then trapping Josephson with child locks and stabbing her to death. Everything she touched was better because she made it so. 
The lessons she taught me as a mom are carried through me forever. Both Uber and Lyft responding to Tuesday's verdict with condolences for the family, stressing continued efforts to secure rides. Uber's website encourages riders to use their app to match the license plate of the vehicle, as well as the make and model and driver's photo. And before entering the car, have the driver confirm the rider's name. I still, to this day, can't believe she is gone. I keep waiting for her to walk through the door. Safety solutions that might have saved her life and still could save another. Katie Beck, NBC News. Police have arrested a 20-year-old man for a shooting at a movie theater near L.A. It happened during a showing of The Forever Purge, leaving an 18-year-old woman dead and TikTok star fighting for his life. No word on a motive. The CDC's eviction moratorium ends this week, but we found federal rent relief money still largely unspent in most states. Morgan Radford has our NBC News investigation. I see you want to get a for Demia Burse and her family. The days ahead are uncertain. It's stressful. It's hard. A single mom in Mississippi, she was forced uh, to quit her it. job to take care of her three kids when the pandemic hit. Now she's two months behind on her rent. What happens to you and your three kids if you do not get this assistance? I don't know. I mean, shelter until we can find something. She's among the millions of Americans who face possible eviction once the emergency CDC moratorium on housing evictions expires this weekend. Congress allocated $46 billion to help renters in need. But Burse and others like her say getting that money is hard. How difficult is the application process? They ask for a lot of information like state ID, birth certificates, 2020 tax returns. They make it so hard. Do you have a computer? I was doing it all off my phone. I just want to give a little information about... Which is why now she's attending community info sessions like this one, getting help to submit her application successfully. NBC News requested data this month from all 50 states. Of the 41 responding, our analysis found that 26 states had distributed less than 10% of the rental assistance money from their first federal allocation. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, here in Mississippi, 79% of adults who are behind on their rent face likely eviction within the next two months, and that's the highest rate in the nation. Scott Spivey is responsible for distributing Mississippi's $186 million of federal assistance. How much of that have you given away? $10 million has been either approved for payment or out the door. What are the biggest challenges in actually distributing that money to the people who need it? Awareness of the program, access to technology, and just getting the word out. I have plenty of money to give qualifying tenants in Mississippi. What I need is applications, and I need time. I can't afford childcare. Burse prays that help will come soon. Do you have hope? Faith. I know if I just do my part, he'll do the rest. Morgan Radford, NBC News, Jackson, Mississippi. That's nightly news for this Wednesday from Tokyo. Thank you for watching, everyone. I'm Lester Holt. Please take care of yourself and each other. Good night. Hey, NBC News viewers. Thanks for checking out our YouTube channel. Subscribe by clicking on that button down here and click on any of the videos over here to watch the latest interviews, show highlights, and digital exclusives. Thanks for watching.
Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. We all know relationships at work and in life are so hard to manage. And the strange thing is, we're never even taught how to connect well, which means so many of our relationships can become pretty dysfunctional. We build friendships, navigate early romantic relationships, get married and bring babies home from the hospital with the expectation that we'll figure it out. But the truth is, we often harm and disrespect the ones we love. That's Katie Hood, CEO of One Love Foundation, an organization that teaches people across the U.S. how to have healthier relationships. Because she believes every single one of us will experience some nasty stuff in relationships, and every single one of us will do some messed up stuff we're really not proud of. Hello, Katie. So I called Katie to chat. It is so good to see you. It is so good to see you, too. Katie and I actually went to business school together, and I wanted to talk to her because we all know there are plenty of unhealthy relationships in the workplace, and I figured we could all learn a little something from Katie's expertise. The same behaviors that are unhealthy in romantic relationships are unhealthy in work relationships and friend relationships and family relationships. So we realized in teaching about these unhealthy behaviors, we had something that could help people through all parts of their lives. Welcome to TED Business. I'm Madupa Akinola. And over the next two weeks, we're going to go deep into what it takes to build healthier personal and professional relationships. So back to Katie's talk after a quick break. If you like TED Business, check out Now What's Next, a podcast from Morgan Stanley, the sponsor of today's episode. Hosted by Sonari Glinton, Now What's Next helps make sense of life during and after the pandemic. Glinton meets with people who are looking for solutions to the cracks exposed by the pandemic. And with his decades of experience reporting on culture and the economy, he definitely shares some interesting stories from his guests. To learn more, subscribe to Now What's Next wherever you get your podcasts. No matter who they are or what they do, Companies want to give their employees all the support they need and deserve. Our sponsor, UKG, has HR and workforce management solutions that can give you the tools you'll need to help make your people, all of your people, feel like they belong. UKG, the cross-category leader in HR solutions. Visit UKG.com to learn more. I work for an organization called One Love, started by a family whose daughter Yardley was killed by her ex-boyfriend. This was a tragedy no one saw coming. But when they looked back, they realized the warning signs were there, just no one understood what they were seeing. Called crazy or drama or too much drinking, his, ang- his actions weren't understood to be what they really were, which was clear signs of danger. Her family realized that if anyone had been educated about these signs, Her death could have been prevented. So today we're on a mission to make sure that others have the information that Yardley and her friends didn't. We have three main goals. Give all of us a language for talking about a subject that's quite awkward and uncomfortable to discuss. Empower a whole front line, namely friends, to help. And in the process, improve all of our ability to love better. To do this, it's always important to start by illuminating the unhealthy signs that we frequently miss. And our work really focuses on creating content to start conversations with young people. 
As you'd expect, most of our content's pretty serious, given the subject at hand. But today, I'm going to use five markers of unhealthy love. The first is intensity. Abusive relationships don't start out abusive; they start out exciting and exhilarating. There's an intensity of affection and emotion, a rush. It feels really good. You feel so lucky, like you've hit the jackpot. But in unhealthy love, these feelings shift over time, from exciting to overwhelming and maybe a little bit suffocating. You feel it in your gut. Maybe it's when your new boyfriend or girlfriend says "I love you" faster than you were ready for, or starts showing up everywhere, texting and calling a lot. Maybe they're impatient when you're slow to respond, even though they know you had other things going on that day. It's important to remember that it's not how a relationship starts that matters; it's how it evolves. It's important in the early days of a new relationship to pay attention to how you're feeling. Are you comfortable with the pace of intimacy? Do you feel like you have space and room to breathe? It's also really important to start practicing using your voice to talk about your own needs. Are your requests respected? A second marker is isolation. If you ask me, isolation is one of the most frequently missed and misunderstood signs of unhealthy love. Why? Well, because every new relationship starts out with this intense desire to spend time together, it's easy to miss when something shifts. Isolation creeps in when your new boyfriend or girlfriend starts pulling you away from your friends and family, your support system, and tethering you more tightly to them. They might say things like, "Why do you hang out with them? They're such losers." About your best friends, or they want us to break up. They're totally against us. About your family. Isolation is about sowing seeds of doubt about everyone from your pre-relationship life. Healthy love includes independence. Two people who love spending time together, but who stay connected to the people and activities they cared about before. While at first you might spend every waking minute together, over time maintaining independence is key. You do this by making plans with friends and sticking to them, and encouraging your partner to do the same. A third marker of unhealthy love is extreme jealousy. As the honeymoon period begins to fade, extreme jealousy can creep in. Your partner might become more demanding, needing to know where you are and who you're with all the time, or they might start following you everywhere, online and off. Extreme jealousy also brings with it possessiveness and mistrust, frequent accusations of flirting with other people or cheating, and refusal to listen to you when you tell them they have nothing to worry about and that you only love them. Jealousy is a part of any human relationship, but extreme jealousy is different. There's a threatening, desperate, and angry edge to it. Love shouldn't feel like this. A fourth marker is belittling. In unhealthy love, words are used as weapons. Conversations that used to be fun and lighthearted turn mean and embarrassing. Maybe your partner makes fun of you in a way that hurts, or maybe they tell stories and jokes for laughs at your expense. When you try to explain that your feelings have been hurt, they shut you down and accuse you of overreacting. Why are you so sensitive? What's your problem? Give me a break. You're silenced by these words. It seems pretty obvious, but your partner should have your back. Their words should build you up, not break you down. They should keep your secrets and be loyal. They should make you feel more confident, not less. Finally, a fifth marker: volatility. Frequent breakups and makeups, high highs and low lows. As tension rises, so does volatility. 
Tearful, frustrated fights followed by emotional makeups. Hateful and hurtful comments like, "You're worthless. I'm not even sure why I'm with you." Followed quickly by apologies and promises it will never happen again. By this point, you've been so conditioned to this relationship roller coaster that you may not realize how unhealthy and maybe even dangerous your relationship has become. It can be really hard to see when unhealthy love turns towards abuse, but it's fair to say that the more of these markers your relationship might have, the more unhealthy and maybe dangerous your relationship could be. And if your instinct is to break up and leave, which is advice so many of us give our friends when they're in unhealthy relationships, that's not always the best advice. Time of breakup can be a real trigger for violence. If you fear you might be headed towards abuse or in abuse, you need to consult with experts to get the advice on how to leave safely. But it's not just about romantic relationships, and it's not just about violence. Understanding the signs of unhealthy love can help you audit and understand nearly every relationship in your life. For the first time, you might understand why you're disappointed in a friendship, or why every interaction with a certain family member leaves you discouraged and anxious. You might even begin to see how your own intensity and jealousy is causing problems with colleagues at work. Understanding is the first step to improving, and while you can't make every unhealthy relationship healthy, some you're going to have to leave behind. You can do your part every day to do relationships better. And here's the exciting news: it's actually not rocket science. Open communication, mutual respect, kindness, patience—we can practice these things every day. And while practice will definitely make you better. I have to promise you, it's also not going to make you perfect. I do this for a living. Every day, I think and talk about healthy relationships, and still, I do unhealthy things. Just the other day, as I was trying to shuttle my four kids out the door amidst quarreling, squabbling, and complaints about breakfast, I completely lost it. With an intentionally angry edge, I screamed, "Everybody, just shut up and do what I say! You are the worst. I'm going to take away screen time and dessert and anything else you could possibly ever enjoy in life." <laughs> Anybody been there? <laughs> Volatility, belittling. My oldest son turned around and looked at me and said, "Mom, that's not love." <laughs> For a minute, I really wanted to kill him for calling me out. Trust me. <laughs> But then I gathered myself and I thought, you know what? I'm actually proud. I'm proud that he has a language to make me pause. I want all of my kids to understand what the bar should be for how they're treated, and to have a language and a voice to use when that bar is not met versus just accepting it. For too long, we've treated we've treated relationships as a soft topic. When relationship skills are one of the most important and hard-to-build things in life, not only can understanding unhealthy signs help you avoid the rabbit hole that leads to unhealthy love, but understanding and practicing the art of being healthy can improve nearly every aspect of your life. I'm completely convinced that while love is an instinct and an emotion, the ability to love better is a skill we can all build and improve on over time. Thank you. Katie threw some nuggets up in there, so I have a lot of questions. And given this is about relationships, it's going to take a whole lot more than a typical short lesson to unpack this one. 
So please tune in next week. Hi, Katie. Hi, Madupe. How are you? Where Katie and I will spend a full episode deconstructing how to handle some tough dynamics at work. I'm good. I'm good. You know, I've really been enjoying working with you, but there was an experience that happened the other day that I wanted to talk to you about. Okay. How do you tell your boss that something they did really hurt you? I kind of felt a little belittled. I kind of felt like you saw me as an idiot and I'm really working my best and I'm trying my hardest. And, um, I just, I, I, I just wanted to share that with you because it, it, it hurt. And how, as a boss, do you respond? I'm so sorry that I made you feel like an idiot. That was definitely not my intent. But if that is the impact I had, then I'm super grateful that you just raised it with me. Next week, Katie Hood prepares us for those moments where finding the right words can be so hard. I mean, our whole goal is to turn what people normally code as emotion, how you feel when somebody belittles mm-hmm. you or when somebody's volatile with you. We mm-hmm. want to give people a language. So instead of just feeling bad, they can say, that was really belittling. And they can name yeah. it and then they can talk through it. So it's providing a language yep. we didn't have before. So there's some good stuff in store for you next week. This show is produced by Kim Naderfane-Peterza, mixed by Sam Baer, and fact-checked by Eliza Solomon. Special thanks to Michelle Quint, Corey Hagem, Nicole Bodie, Anna Phelan, and Colin Helms. I'm Madupa Akinola, and you can always reach me with feedback or ideas for the show at business at ted.com. Talk to you again next week. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Hi, everyone. This is Tony from OKCoin. With me today is Arthur Brightman, the co-founder of Tezos. Arthur, it's great to be speaking with you today. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Well, Arthur, uh, OKCoin just listed Tezos, the ability to buy, sell, trade, and also stake Tezos. And I thought it would be timely for you to give an overview of Tezos so our community can learn more. Uh, Let's start with the history. What what made you decide to start Tezos? Uh, Before we get there, I just want to point out the the, the cryptocurrency is called Tez. So you're not staking Tezos, you're not trading Tezos, you're trading Tez. Uh, Got it. What made me want to... uh, So my early involvement in Tezos, um, I think what, what... was fascinating for me was this idea of um, cryptocurrencies or ledgers, and essentially uh, the 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 algorithm that underpins and can 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 change what matters is a ledger, and that's that's something that's socially constructed. Like there's a there's an agreement that yes, you know, this is everyone's balance, uh, and the way we maintain it uh, is not set in stone. But that causes practical question, which is if it's not, then how do we how do we change it? How do we, how do we maintain this kind of social agreement around the ledger uh, while changing the underpinning algorithm or or consensus method or um, or protocol? And uh, there were two school of thoughts. One was that you do it with hard forks, and the other one is that you don't do it. Uh, and that's what you mostly see today. Uh, you know, with the most famous representative of you don't do it being Bitcoin, uh, or, you know, you, you do it very, very sparingly for very minimal things. Uh, and, and Ethereum being on the camp of like, you just hard fork. 
And so I, I thought it was the third way to do with this, which was to use the, uh, the consensus making ability of blockchains in order to, um, to get consensus over the changes themselves. Uh, and so this was this idea that you can, you know, a rule set can provide for, uh, can provide rules for its own modification. So you want to have a full introspective protocol that has rule about how the rules evolve. And that was Tezos. So I, I, the concept was intellectually fascinating for me. And that's why I, uh, you know, I, uh, I ended up falling into this rabbit hole. Sure. And can you tell us a bit about the attributes? Um, obviously, we have the token, the XTZ token. Um, it's proof of stake uh, blockchain. Can you go through some of those things and maybe what makes uh, Tezos different from other proof of stake blockchains? Sure. I mean, there's many things that make um, that, that, that makes Tezos uh, unique, but in general, I insist on three aspects. Uh, so, um, you know, you've mentioned proof of stake and we've been proof of stake since uh, the very beginning, since our launch in uh, 2018, uh, but the product is updates from 2014. Uh, one other aspect is a high level virtual machine. And, you know, that, that, that sounds a little uh, oddly specific until you actually uh, realize what it can do. Um, the benefit is that instead of running a, uh, an assembly language uh, uh, for, for running smart contracts, we're in a higher level language, which makes it easier to make proofs about your program. So if you want to have very high value application, you have an easier time proving their properties. Um, it can also be more efficient. And we've had gains of about two orders of magnitude in efficiency over the past so that's you know um, like forty to hundred x uh, over the past year, uh, and 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 part of that is because we have this high level language, and so we don't have to spend all of our time measuring gas. Instead of that, we can take big leaps through programs. So it's a bit of a technical aspect, but there's been there's benefits in having this approach, and we're fairly unique in taking it. And the third one, of course, is a governance. So each tenant can evolve. Uh, and it doesn't evolve by diktats. It doesn't evolve by you know the decisions of a few. It evolves by uh, consensus over all the validators of the uh, of, of the chain. The, the thresholds are very high. It takes an eighty percent supermajority to accept a change, for example. So those are um, the main uh, the the main the main properties of Tezos, and I think what really sets it apart. Got it. And tell us about staking, um, the ability to earn and and holding uh, the XTZ tokens. Right. So. Um, you know, Tez by itself, uh, the cryptocurrency, though it has a ticker, which is XTZ, but I like to refer it by its name, Tez. Um, so Tez is, uh, uh, by itself, holding Tez can give you block creation rights. So just by holding Tez, not even staking it, just by holding Tez, once in a while, you're going to get the rights to create a block. Mm. And then you can either exercise that right yourself. So if you exercise that right, what you're going to do is you're going to put up a bond, you're going to create your block, and then after a while, your bond is returned to you. So um, that's the mechanism for, uh, for, 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 for block creation. The other thing you can do is you can uh, rent out those block creation rights to a baker. You can tell a baker, look, I'm getting these block creation rights because I hold Tez. You go out and, and you, you put up a bond and you create the block. So that's a delegation mechanism that we have in Tezos. And so a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, uh, what we call bakers are going to do that. So essentially, they are people. Um, who are going to put up a security deposit, create a block, so everything. Um, they collect the block reward, but in general, they will uh, typically give ninety percent, or you know, it, it varies. You know, it could be as, it could be eighty percent, it could be ninety-five percent. They're going to give a big fraction of that block reward um, to the to the delegator for 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 having received all of these uh, all of these block creation rights. 
What's your long-term vision for Tezos as being, you know, the co-founder and how, how far the project has come and grown and getting adoption? You know, what's, what's your outlook for and vision for it? Um, I think scaling is going to be quite important. So just, you know, uh, becoming bigger and becoming pervasive. So having, being a, uh, uh, underpinning a lot of transactions, underpinning a lot of uh, financial uh, activity, but not just financial, I think every asset can be represented and, and will be represented on, uh, on, on, on this type of network. So including art, equities, commodities, uh, derivatives, all, all of these uh, assets are going to find a place on uh, on blockchain. And I, and, I, and, uh, and I think the goal for Tezos is to be the, you know, the preferred place where all of these things take place. So on that note, let's talk about some recent uh, adoption news, which were pretty exciting and pretty big, such as USDC stablecoin will be launching on the Tezos blockchain. Can you talk right. about that? Yeah, so I mean, I I I don't know that that, that much more than you do probably. <laughs> I know that uh, you know Circle is a big uh, uh, is big in the stablecoin space, and that USDC you know uh, started becoming uh, uh, be, you know one one of the biggest. I think the biggest is probably still still Tether, but uh, USDC certainly has seen a, a ton of growth. Um, and so you know they're on a few chains, and uh, one of these is going uh, is going to be uh, Tezos, and I I think that's quite useful if you want to build. Uh, Primitives would interact with USDC on a Tezos chain. Then once you have USDC launched on Tezos, you can do that. That can be useful for DeFi application, for payments, and for a bunch of other things. Um, in addition, there was also the McLaren racing team, um, which are going to be using Tezos for the Formula One NFTs. That sounds very exciting with the boom of NFTs. Yeah, yeah, it's right. So uh, it's both uh, McLaren and Red Bull Racing who are uh, issuing uh, NFTs for their fans. Uh, and uh, general engagement with their fans. And, um, you know, they're using the Tezos blockchain as a, as, as a platform for this endeavor. Um, are there any hints to what we can expect from Tezos for the remainder of the year? I know there's certain things probably under NDA and uh, PR release, but any any hints you can uh, give us? Yeah, sure. So um, we're having um, more protocol proposals um, that are going to be proposed. So right now we are just about a little more than a week away from the activation of Granada. Um, and Granada comes with an interesting feature. So most protocol upgrades so far have been about, you know, technical, I would say changing technical parameters uh, in, in, in the protocol or, or, you know, upgrading the consensus algorithms, uh, faster virtual machine. There's something that is quite new in Granada called liquidity baking. And the idea is to use a bit of inflation. So um, in total about, uh, I think, 0.13%. So you're, you extend the money supply by 0.13%. And then you use that for the next six months as a subsidy for providing liquidity between on a chain between Tez and a wrapped version of Bitcoin called TZBTC. Uh, and that's cool because you might say that a lot of technical changes, you could do that with hard forks because, oh, you know, it's uncontroversial. You know, it's just like a faster way of doing things. Why do you even need, you know, to have an upgrade? People can just install the new version. It's, it's the same protocol. Um, so, uh, whereas doing, uh, you know, like choosing to choosing basically to use uh, a little bit of inflation in the money supply to solve a collective action problem, which is a provision of liquidity, is I think quite novel uh, and, and interesting, especially for uh, for an L1. So we're going to see how this play out. It's an experiment, uh, but it's it's definitely something to uh, something to uh, to watch closely. And that starts in just about seven days, uh, maybe you know. Eight days, something like that. Um, and then we have 
Um, so new proposals are going to come. So uh, typically proposals are named after letters of the alphabet and cities. So uh, G for Granada. Before that, we had F for Florence. So there's H for. So proposal H is going to uh, is, is is likely going to include um, uh, uh, a um, new consensus algorithm called Tenderbake, which has finality on every block. Uh, which you know, right now you, you get some pretty decent, pretty decent statistical finality after just five blocks. But here you will have shorter block times and faster finality, which is quite, um, which is quite useful. Um, and uh, I think after that, we one of the big uh, project on our uh, on, on on the roadmap of different uh, teams working on a on a protocol such as Nomadic, Marigold. You know, there's many different uh, teams involved. Is getting uh, optimistic rollups. On a, on a platform. And you know, there's one way you can build optimistic rollup where we just build them in isolation from the chain and you, know, just, you just bring them. But if you build them inside the protocol uh, as a first class citizen, they can get a little more efficient. And so the idea is to have this first class citizens of the protocol. Got it. Well, uh, let's wrap it up with this. Uh, anything else uh, you think any new users to Tezos uh, should know about? Um, and I know you covered a lot there, but any final words on Tezos that maybe folks who first encountering it should know about um yeah uh, we having a tremendous amount of activity right now on the chain so the amount of uh, smart contract calls has been uh, growing exponentially since the beginning of the year uh we're just setting new records uh in uh, in usage and adoption every month uh there's a um the lot you know the, the most active art marketplace across all blockchains today for nfts is not on ethereum it's not on polygon it's not on any of these platforms on Tezos. Uh, I think there's a tendency for people who are not that familiar with Tezos, or maybe Tezos fell out of their radar and they're like, oh yeah, what, you know, what Tezos, it's actually, you know, there's a tremendous amount of activity going on in the chain right now. And I think if you're not paying attention to all the activities that's been going on on, on, on Tezos, you're missing out on something potentially cool and you should really, uh, you should really check it out uh, for, your, for, your, for, your, for your next project or for your current project because um, there's, a bit of a, uh, uh, there's a bit of a boom happening in, uh, in the application space here. Arthur, uh, I'm so excited for the future of Tezos. I'm a, personally a Tezos holder and I've been staking. Um, so thank you for joining us today. Um, and I look forward to seeing the updates that are going to be rolled out this year. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Join me, Helga Davis, on my podcast, Helga, The Armory Conversations, for everyday conversations with extraordinary people. Listen to Helga, The Armory Conversations, wherever you get podcasts. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. 
If you ride the trains or buses, heads up, there's big mass transit news on at least two fronts this morning. One is the bipartisan infrastructure bill that Democrats and Republicans have actually agreed to move forward on in the United States Senate. Mass transit spending was one of the last big sticking points, but the White House now says the emerging deal will include the largest federal investment in public transit ever, both for local systems and for Amtrak. And locally, we have the news that Sarah Feinberg, the interim president of New York City Transit, the city's bus and subway system, is leaving. Her last day is tomorrow. The leadership of the whole MTA is in flux now. The MTA includes the city's buses and subways, plus the Metro North and Long Island Railroad commuter lines and the bridges and tunnels within the city. Sarah Feinberg joins us now. Thanks for coming on again, and I guess it's now an exit interview. Welcome back to WNYC. Thanks. It's good to be with you. Always good to be on with you. And you confirm the story, right? Tomorrow's your last day? Tomorrow's my last day. Yeah, we had, uh, I had previously um, announced this. It's getting some, some new looks and some new news this morning because I gave an interview to the New York Post. But uh, yeah, tomorrow's my last day as, as president of New York City Transit. And Governor Cuomo, as I understand it, had wanted to split the MTA leadership into two separate jobs with you taking one of them. If I understand correctly, you were willing to stay on in one of those roles, but not in this role or as head of the whole MTA after that plan to split the leadership failed. If I do have that right, uh, why the one but not the others? Yeah, I, I know. It gets complicated fast. So that's right. So so the governor sent uh, a bill to Albany suggesting that uh, we split the, the top role. So right now that the MTA is led by one person who's both the CEO and the chair of the board. The legislation suggests that we split the role into two, one being the CEO and one being the chair of the board. I've actually long advocated for this over the last, oh, I don't know, two or three years. Uh, look, the MTA is, you know, a multi-billion dollar agency. 72,000 employees on its best day, you know, we need as many hands on the wheel as we can, you know, good, smart, experienced folks leading the organization. And the reality is this is not its best day. You know, ridership has fallen off since the pandemic. We have a huge capital program ahead of us, major projects, congestion pricing, you know, all of that stuff on the horizon. And, you know, this, the theory is, you know, we need, uh, you know, we need more strong leaders running the, the agency. So we'll see if the Senate acts. We're waiting for them to act. I uh, was willing and I'm still willing to step in and be the chair of the board uh, and uh, would be it would be an honor to do so. Uh, and if the Senate acts, I'm, I'm happy to step into that role. Talk about a tough time to take a job. You were appointed interim president of New York City Transit after the very popular Andy Byford left that job, partly because he felt Governor Cuomo was making the job intolerable. He used that word. And, oh, yeah, you came on in March of last year, and the pandemic started here in March of last year. You had to run the system and deal with large numbers of COVID deaths in your own workforce. So 16 months later, Sarah Feinberg, how are you? Oh, 17 months, but who's counting? Um, yeah, right. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, look, the great, I mean, look, the running New York City Transit uh, is a massive challenge. Largest transit agency in North America, millions of customers, 472 stations, right? It's a huge system. It's a huge challenge on any day. It's also what I've long described as the best job in transportation in America. It is so challenging, so exciting, but you, you know, impact the lives of so many New Yorkers every single day in a way that I just love. You know, getting people home, getting people to work, getting people to school, just the basics of of helping people, you know, live in a city. Um, and so it's it's a wonderful job. Uh, you know, running New York City Transit during COVID was an unbelievable challenge. Obviously, you hit on uh, the just massive impact that COVID had on our workforce. Thousands of, of our colleagues were sick, were ill, were out on quarantine. And more than 150 uh, New York City Transit uh, men and women passed away. And so it was by far the hardest thing um, to deal with as president of New York City Transit. But, you know, my hardest day paled in comparison to what the men and women of New York City Transit were going through. So both the folks who were sick and who passed away and their families, obviously, but also just the men and women who showed up every single day and, as I say, you know, carried the city on their back for the last 16 months, operating buses, operating trains, you know, working in stations, cleaning, uh, working in dispatch, doing it all. So um, it's been the honor of a career. Nicely said about the workforce. Andy Byford felt marginalized by Governor Cuomo, like he was being excluded from decisions affecting New York City Transit, even though he was president of New York City Transit. Has that been a problem at all for you? I have never felt that way. I have um, I've made my own decisions. I have executed on my decisions. I have always been involved. I felt like the governor has been a great partner to me. Um, you know, others have, have felt differently. Obviously, I would never try to speak for Andy, uh, but I have never felt that way. And, uh, and I feel like we've had a great partnership and I've enjoyed working with him. We share a vision for, you know, what this system can be. You know, I've long said that I think that New York City Transit can be the shining star of transit for, you know, certainly for the country and really for all of the world. And we've got a ways to go before we get there, but he shares that vision and, and I've appreciated appreciated both his partnership, but also, you know, the fact that he has worked with me, deferred to me and and promoted me. Are there any decisions you've made as president that Governor Cuomo may not have been crazy about? Uh, I am sure there have been decisions that I have made as New York City Transit president that he was not crazy about. But to his credit, I have I have never heard about them. And listeners, we can take some phone calls for Sarah Feinberg as she departs tomorrow as interim president of New York City Transit. Uh, These questions can be about the state of the buses and the subways, uh, not just about sort of the leadership of the MTA and those chess pieces which are in flux moving about the leadership chessboard right now. 646-435-7280, or tweet at Brian Lehrer. One issue I keep seeing reported about for the buses and subways right now is service delays because of staffing shortages. Can you give us an update on how you see the staffing situation right now and its effect on service at this time? Yep. So, you know, during the height of the pandemic, um, and really beyond the height of the pandemic, the MTA went into a hiring freeze. 
which means, you know, obviously people move on, they retire, they move on to other jobs, but the hiring freeze means that we do not rehire into positions. We've been through hiring freezes in the past. I think actually for most of my time on the board uh, and as president, we've been in a hiring freeze. But what was different about the one during the pandemic was that the hiring freeze was extended to to our operational titles. So train operators, bus operators, conductors, those positions that previously, even during a hiring freeze, we would continue to hire. Uh, And so that's had a huge impact. Um, You know, look, the financial crisis that we went through was dire. I I don't think anything in in MTA's past has compared to it. And so we had to take, you know, significant steps to address it. Uh, But it, you know, it's it's had a significant impact on our operations. Now, To be clear, we lifted that hiring freeze in February. We've been hiring into those operational titles ever since. You know, with the lifting of, you know, some of the COVID restrictions over the last couple of months, we've been able to have more flexibility in hiring, obviously, more flexibility in in training, larger class sizes, obviously, with the Delta variant and COVID making a bit of a comeback, we'll see what happens. Um, But look, anyone who leads a transit agency will tell you that the worst thing that can happen to that agency apart from, you know, an, a, uh, a fatal incident or a catastrophic incident is going into a hiring freeze because it's just very hard to dig out of. Um, now, because we've got so many train operators, bus operators, conductors, folks who can, you know, work an overtime shift, who, you know, can continue to be on call and, and move those buses and trains, the impacts have been less than they could have been. We also have really, you know, strategic experienced people in our rail operations control center who can do what we call flex the headways so that, you know, when we are experiencing a crew shortage on a particular line, they can shift the trains around a little bit, move headways around so that people are less impacted. But there's no, there's no question that, that it's had an impact. And, uh, and one of the things that, you know, I hope to work on if, if the Senate takes up my nomination as chair and that I know, you know, Jano Lieber hopes to work on if he becomes CEO is to address those those shortages immediately. We want to hire as quickly as we possibly can to to bring uh, to bring workers back and and to bring on more workers so that we can run as much service as possible. If you're just joining us, Sarah Feinberger is our guest on her second to last day as interim president of New York City Transit. Though, as you hear, she may be taking another leadership job soon within the MTA. Our first two listener questions on Twitter are both about masks. One person asks, the MTA is doing a terrible job enforcing, much less conveying, mandatory mask rule. There needs to be more signage in every single car and at every entrance into the subways. And the other one says, since she's leaving, is there anything blunt Ms. Feinberg would care to say to the NYPD and the mayor about how so many cops refuse to wear masks properly or at all while on the subways and buses? Will you take those two questions? Yeah, I'm happy to. So first of all, you know, we are, you know, I think that we're doing a really good job of getting the message out that masks are still required in the transit system. You know, obviously your your listener feels like we, we need to do more in terms of signage and messaging. I feel like we, you know, we're, we're doing a lot, but we can always do more. And I'll take that back to the team and, and have them take another look at, you know, are there more places we can put up signs? Is there, are there more ways to message to customers? Uh, masks are absolutely required in the system. That's a federal mandate. 
mandate, and it also just makes sense. You know, the transit system is not uh, a system that a lot of people use by choice, right? A lot of people have to use the transit system to get to work, to get to school, to get to doctor's appointments. And so we inevitably have in the transit system a vulnerable population, folks who have been unable to get vaccinated for some reason, folks who have an underlying condition, maybe they're receiving uh, medical care. And so you've got to make sure that you're protecting those folks who, um, who you know, are particularly vulnerable. And so even, and you know, kids. a couple of weeks ago, sorry? Including kids, yeah. Absolutely, yes. The under 12 population that hasn't, hasn't had access to a vaccine yet, you've got to protect those folks. So, you know, even a couple of weeks ago when, you know, mandates were being lifted, we kept ours in place both for the federal, uh, because of federal regulations and also because it just makes sense in the transit system. Uh, in terms of, look, folks not wearing masks, particularly police officers, everyone should be wearing a mask. You know, I see the, I see the, the tweets, I see, you know, the, the sort of consternation about the police not wearing masks, certainly for the MTA police, uh, who obviously work for the MTA, we are, you know, vigilant about reminding folks, you must wear a mask when you're in the system. It's the right thing to do. Uh, it's our policy internally. And look, at, everyone should be doing it. I understand, you know, the weather, it's hot, it's uncomfortable, but at this point, you know, it's, it's just the right thing to do, particularly as the variant comes back. The city and the state are both imposing uh, vaccination or testing mandates for their workers. The MTA technically is neither a city agency nor a state agency. Do these mandates for vaccination or testing apply to bus and subway workers? My understanding is they don't technically apply because we, our board would have to, the MTA board would have to take action to mandate uh, vaccinations or mandatory testing. But certainly, you know, personally, I feel like it's an important, uh, it's an important mandate. Look, we are, uh, we are a workforce that is um, obviously in touch with the public, communicates with the public, uh, and so I feel like it's important for us to be vaccinated. But beyond that, we have paid such a heavy price for COVID. You know, the the number of, you know, it's it's still hard for me to talk talk about, but the number of spouses and children that I have talked to on the phone who lost a member of their family, who worked at New York City Transit, I you know I think if um, if uh, you could imagine some of those conversations, you would understand why I am um, very much in favor of of vaccination, and I would love to see every member of our workforce who who's able to uh, get a vaccine. But that's still just encouraging it. Um, what's on the docket for people listening to this who think, wait, I want bus and subway workers to have this mandate along with all the other public sector workers. Um, is there a plan? Is the MTA board going to meet and vote on this? Well, so it, it'll be up to the board. I, I know that there are discussions about it, and I'll leave it to the board to, to act on it. But certainly, just personally, I would be in favor of it. Josephine in Queens. You're on WNYC with Interim Bus and Subway uh, New York City Transit System President Sarah Feinberg. I almost got her title right. Josephine, you're on WNYC. Hello. Hello. Good morning. I appreciate this is your last day, but maybe you could pass this information on. It was horrible on Monday. It was hot. I was looking for the R train. I got on the R train and couldn't understand, you know, why not post it along um, you know, where they tell you the next stop. It's, all it kept saying was listen to the the announcement. You couldn't understand the announcement. I wound up on 72nd Street, which is the 2nd Avenue line, came back to 63rd, found out the F train was not going to... No one knew what was going on. And to boot, to boot, 
when I got to the token booth, as you can tell by my age, I say token booth, she was telling me to take the number seven train. That doesn't go to Woodhaven Boulevard. Then she told me to take the LIRR, that they were honoring our metro card. Well, the, unless the, they were planning to have the LIRR stop at Woodhaven Boulevard on the trellis and I was supposed to jump off, I don't know what I, I mean, it was ridiculous. Mm. Fortunately, I know the MT, I know pretty good at the subway system. I knew I could get off and take a bus or an express bus. But imagine for someone who is not aware, like I am. Josephine, thank you. Maybe that operator thought you said Woodside, where those trains do go. But Sarah Feinberg, there was a big mess on Monday, and there have been a lot of days like that recently because of staff shortages or whatever. So what would you say to Josephine about the particular and more generally? Yeah, look, we, you know, in an ideal world, and certainly my wish would be that that Josephine never has an experience like that, and that no customer ever has an experience like that. Uh, you know, it, it's those those experiences are, are frustrating. You know, Josephine had a place to go where she needed to be, and she was both delayed and having trouble figuring out, you know, how, the best way to get there. And so, you know, I will say that there is no workforce in the world that I've ever experienced that cares more about delivering customers safely and efficiently to where they're trying to go. And we're not always perfect. And, you know, we've got a whole host of things that are working against us on any given day. Uh, you know, sometimes it's a, a, a system malfunction. Sometimes it's the fact that our infrastructure is more than 100 years old. Sometimes it's climate change and, you know, flash flooding from, from several inches of rain in a couple of hours. Uh, there are all kinds of things that, that our workforce is contending with. But, you know, bottom line is we'd all like for Josephine and all of her fellow riders to get where they're going, you know, quickly and efficiently. And our apologies that she didn't have a, a good experience on Monday. Well, is that a staff uh, shortage issue? I know we talked about this a little bit already, but like in some parts of the private sector, people are leaving or not returning to the kinds of work they had before in equal numbers because of the COVID era demands and risks and stress, restaurant workers, retail, nurses, other healthcare workers, to different degrees. How true is that for bus and subway workers, and how much is that affecting service? Yeah, look, I think there's all kinds of reasons for it. Certainly, I think given the last year and a half that we, not not just we as New York City Transit have had, but we as a country um, have had dealing with COVID, I think all kinds of different pieces of, of, of all workforces are thinking about how they want to spend their time, what they want to do, you know, do they want to work at home? Do they want to be with their families? Do they want to be in a line of work that's flexible? Do, you know, so, so I think certainly we're dealing with that, um, you know, but at the same time, I think, you know, we are dealing with all ho a whole host of other challenges that I sort of just went through in response to Josephine. You know, the, the good news is, is that we are the biggest transit system in North America. We run tremendous amounts of service. Uh, you know, I have lived in other cities. I lived in Washington, D.C. for many years, where the headways were frequently eight minutes during rush hour, 12 minutes, you know, in the middle of the day, 20 minutes, 30 minutes in the middle, you know, in the middle of the day and the weekend. That's not to say people should just, you know, be happy with the service that they're getting. It's just to say the good news is we run tremendous amounts of service. And so even when we have a really tough day, and we have crew shortages, maybe we have a signal problem, maybe we have 
a maintenance issue. Maybe something else has, has gone wrong. Uh, we run so much service that there are generally options for people, which is good. You know, on this crew shortage issue specifically, you know, we pulled out over the last couple of weeks, we've pulled out specific causes for delays to trains. Was it a crew shortage issue? Was it a CBTC issue? Was it a, a different signal issue? Was it the fact that, you know, we, we had a maintenance issue? What was the exact problem? And in, you know, what we, what we learned from that is that most riders are probably experiencing about one minute to one minute, 15 seconds of delays due to crew shortages. So that is not to say it's not frustrating. It certainly is. When you need to be somewhere, you need to be somewhere, and it doesn't help that it's 95 degrees and you're wearing a mask and, you know, it's becoming increasingly crowded. But, you know, I do think that we're running so much service. Well, we're actually in a better place than we were, if you can believe it, in 2019, certainly in 2017, 2018, but even 2019. So you're saying just an average of one minute delays yeah. as a result of staff shortages right now. Yeah, that's right. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to have a tough day if you run into a staff shortage, you know, some other issue, a signal issue. And, you know, there's all kinds of things out there that happen, you know, beyond our beyond our control, like weather and, and uh, you know, other issues, like police issues, things like that. So it doesn't mean you're not going to you're not going to run into tough commutes here and there. But um, when we ran the numbers, it's about a minute to a minute and 15 seconds uh, 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 related to crew shortages. But but the answers you just gave don't seem to comport with with the experiences that a lot of people say they're having and that have been in the press, which is that there are a lot of delays right now, and it's different than before the pandemic, worse. Well, that's, what, that's why I'm trying to say and preface it all with, I understand that um, there are days when it feels particularly bad. And when you're standing on a platform, it doesn't help, you know, waiting on a train, it doesn't help for me to say, oh, but, you know, the crew shortage is only impacting your commute by one minute or two minutes. I, 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 I totally understand that. Um, but the reality is, is, you know, when you look back, we are actually running pretty good service compared to 2020 and great service compared to 2017, 18, and 19. Again, you know, I understand that there, there are times when you're standing on a platform when it's frustrating. And, and look, the job of the president of New York City Transit is to hear those concerns and do everything I can to make sure that, you know, every rush hour, every commute goes as seamlessly as possible. And so that's always going to be our responsibility and something we own and something we're always trying to, to, to improve and get better at. Yeah, I guess it's that, that one minute doesn't get equally distributed. So if a, a train is canceled due to a crew shortage, it's more than a minute delay, right? Um, that, that line will run trains with greater spacing at that time. So when that happens, it doesn't feel like a minute because it's not a minute in those cases. The other lines may not have crew shortages that day, so they're not experiencing at all. So the one-minute average is one thing. The experience for riders when there are crew shortages is different. That's fair, right? Right. So, so when, it, when I was talking about flexing the headways, one of the things we try to do is we've got really experienced people in our rail control center who will see that we've got a crew shortage on one particular line. And let's say that the, he, you know, the headways during rush hour on that line you know, are supposed to be four minutes. So if we've got a crew shortage, rather than you know, miss, a, miss a trip and then have that headway be eight minutes, they will try to flex the headways a bit. So the next couple of mm -hmm. headways are five minutes or six minutes as opposed to, you know, doubling that headway for one for one group. And obviously we're 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 juggling wanting to make sure that, you know, we keep crowding on platforms to a minimum and and run as much service as possible. 
Paul in Washington Heights has a perennial bus riders question, I think. Paul, you're on WNYC with Sarah Feinberg. Hi. Oh, good morning, uh, Brian, and hello, Ms. Feinberg. Thank you for shouldering this work. Um, so I'd like to ask about what I call the, the pachyderm parade. That is to say, when the buses bunch up because of traffic or other causes, and you're waiting for a long, long time for a bus, and then three or four pass uh, in quick succession, why can't the supervisors space out those buses in real time? Great. Great question. Thank, thank you for the question. I'm glad to talk about buses um, for a minute because it's been a huge focus of, of ours for the last, you know, 18 months and certainly and certainly before as well. So to that specific issue, we actually do have supervisors and dispatchers and what we call road ops out there on the streets, on corners, doing exactly what the what the caller just mentioned. So, you know, trying to prevent that bunching up. We're not always perfect. Traffic doesn't always cooperate, but that's exactly what we're out there doing. Uh, because obviously it doesn't doesn't help folks if there's a 15 minute wait and then you get three buses in a row. So we're trying to we're trying to to do that throughout the city. Um, the other thing uh, to know is is that um, you know the best thing we can do for bus service in this city is to keep people out of bus lanes, uh, to keep you know parked cars uh, out of the bus lane. If bus lanes are only for buses, this city moves really well, and it's been a big focus of ours for the last 18 months. In fact, the first thing I did as, as interim president uh, before you know, COVID sort of took over everything was we'd implemented what we call the ABLE system, which is a camera system where we've got cameras on the front of buses. And as they proceed through the bus lane, they're taking photos of the license plates of cars that are blocking the bus lane. So UPS vehicles, FedEx vehicles, you know, the cable company, uh, you know, sometimes the police officer, uh, you know, sometimes the, the delivery truck, the Amazon folks, um, or even just, you know, you know, folks who, who are trying to run into a coffee shop or a store to make a, to do a quick Aaron. You know, the, the camera takes a photo of that license plate and then the person gets ticketed. And, you know, the thought is that once you get one or two of those tickets, you learn your lesson and you stay out of the bus lane. And, you know, one of the first things I did when I became interim president was we sent a letter to the top 10 companies that were our biggest offenders of sitting in the bus lane blocking traffic. And, you know, we sent them a letter and said, look, you've gotten dozens and dozens or hundreds of these tickets. What are you doing? You've got to get out of the bus lane. You know, you're screwing up our, you're screwing up people who are trying to get places in our city. It's also not safe. You know, it, we shouldn't be asking our bus operators to swing out into traffic. We shouldn't be asking, you know, our our customers, our riders, the elderly population, our disabled, you know, community to try to get on a bus that's like swung out into a lane of traffic. Uh, this has got to stop. And to, to their credit, a bunch of the companies wrote back and said, thank you for bringing this to our attention. We will address this immediately. Now, you know, a couple of weeks later, COVID took over, and, and we've certainly continued the program, and Jano and I have plans to expand the program and put even more cameras on buses so that we can keep those bus lanes clear, and I'd also like to do busways as well, more and more of those busways, but um, look, you know, my... I. 
I always say that the subway is my first true love, but um, but buses are absolutely the future of how we're going to move this city, you know, in the future. And we've got to get our bus lanes clear in order to be able to do it. Yeah, good points about buses and bus lanes. We've just got a few minutes left. Let me try to run through a few things real quick. One, have you looked at the Senate's bipartisan infrastructure bill closely enough yet? I know this is brand new to have anything yet on the implications for New York City's buses and subways. Well, we have, and and we're cautiously optimistic. It could obviously mean really good things for a bunch of our big projects, Penn Station reconstruction and access, new Bronx stations for Metro North, our state of good repair projects. Um, so look, if that, if that bill moves and can pass both chambers and get signed by the president, that's going to be great news for New York. Um, and huge thanks to, you know, the entire New York congressional delegation and particularly to Senator Schumer for, you know, the work that they've done to get just empty specifically the resources that we need, but also really significant resources for all of New York. Another COVID question also with the very transmissible Delta variant at the same time the governor is pushing for businesses to bring people back to work in person to the extent that that means more crowded trains without much distancing possible within them, even if people are wearing masks. How safe can you make the subway cars now? And are there good numbers from recent months on COVID transmission? Yeah, so, so, you know, we've said from the beginning of, of COVID, you know, it is always going to be difficult to get social distancing on a New York City subway uh, train and on a, on a uh, New York City transit bus, right? We are a big city. A lot of people use transit, even at the heights of COVID when ridership was five and six and seven percent, there would be crowded trains and crowded buses because that's just the way people move in New York. So the most important thing is to be vigilant about your mask. Everything that I've seen and that others are seeing about the Delta variant uh, and the COVID resurgence is that vaccines still work and masks still work. And so that's the best thing that you can do to protect yourself and your loved ones. And that's why we're going to continue to be really vigilant about it. And last thing, just about you as you leave this job and go on to your next thing. Um, From what I've read about you, your mother was a judge and your father a state legislature, a state legislator from your hometown of Charleston, West Virginia, of all places that seem remote mm-hmm. to most New Yorkers. <laughs> How did you grow up in Charleston, West Virginia and wind up as head of the New York City bus and subway system? Right. Totally predictable, right? <laughs> yeah, my mother was a, uh, an assistant U.S. attorney and then, and then a federal judge. And my father was a state legislator when I was a little girl and, uh, and has not been in the legislature for, uh, since the 1980s, but, but remained a public servant and uh, served on the Public Service Commission and actually most recently spent many years running a soup kitchen uh, as his second act. So um, it's a family of, of public servants. But, you know, we moved to to, uh, my family moved to Charleston, West Virginia before I was born. Uh, my dad got a job there. And I will tell you, it was the most beautiful place to grow up. It is um, lovely. The mountains are absolutely beautiful. The people are so kind. Um, it was just a joy. And I miss, I miss West Virginia every day. I love New York. And I'm, how's the subway system in Charleston? I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you know what? There's a there's a good bus system, and I took the city bus to school a lot. Yes, and and then one <laughs> one one more question about how you then went on to your uh, 
uh, your professional career and how it relates to what you're concluding today and tomorrow. Uh, because I see your background was first in communications. You've been communication director for the House Democratic Caucus, for example, crisis communications manager for Facebook at one time and other things. And then you were chief of staff for the transportation secretary under President Obama and then head of the Federal Railroad Administration, the agency head yourself. I'm just curious, with that combination of experiences, what would you say, and as you take calls from listeners and hear their concerns and hear their frustrations, what would you say are the biggest specific communications or public relations challenges for people running mass transit agencies? Look, I think most people who are running mass transit agencies, uh, and I know this from close relationships with my colleagues across the country, is that um, we really don't play politics. Um, you know, even though I have a background in government and politics, I have not been um, in a partisan position since I think almost 20 years. Uh, so since my mid-20s. And I've served in government. I've served for Democrats. I've served in the White House. I was appointed by uh President Obama to be the, the rail regulator for the United States, confirmed by a Republican Senate. Um, but I think what we would all agree on is that it's not a political job. It is a policy job. It is a, um, a job where you are serving the public, but you are not serving the public in a political way. And the most important thing as, a, as the president of any transit agency will tell you is to be really transparent and clear with your customers and with the community you're serving. And, you know, I think looking back, you'll see that I've done that. I don't uh, pretend that everything is fine on the service side. I say, this is, you know, we have crew shortages and this is why, and this is what we're doing to address it. I don't, you know, pretend that, uh, you know, you're going to be able to get social distance on a New York City subway uh, rail car. I say, that's going to be impossible. That's why you have to wear a mask. I don't say, uh, you know, we don't have a safety and security issue in the subway system when felonies are up 300%. We say, this is what we're seeing, and this is how we're going to address it, and we've got to you know, work together to get, us, get ourselves into a better place. And that's, I think, in my experience, the most important thing that you can do uh, to serve the community uh, that you're working in. Sarah Feinberg, thank you for your service these past 17 months as interim president of New York City Transit. We look forward to having you back in your next role. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.